Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. It's Heard Tell Show. It is Friday, December the 24th. That's Christmas Eve for those of you keeping score at home. And we are thrilled to have you with us. So glad that you're ending your week and ending your holiday season with us. We hope you have a great weekend. Uh, we're going to talk to Brian O'Nolan. Uh, we're going to talk a little holiday cheer, a little Christmas music, a little holiday music. Uh, he covered some Hanukkah music as well. He covered silly songs. He covered Christmas songs against humanity. We're going to talk to him all about that. Uh, also, we're going to talk a little bit about political fundraising. Um, the conversation surrounding Joe Manchin continues. Uh, we're going to look at the ad buys. They put a lot of money running ads in the state of West Virginia. What was the point of that for a year? Uh, when you got nothing out of it, maybe it wasn't aimed at Joe Biden after all. We're going to dig into that later. But first, let's talk a little uh, COVID-19 and, and talk Omicron variant. Um, we've had on the show um, Michael Siegel, our friend. Michael's a writer at Ordinary Times. He does yeoman's work on this. He's been writing about COVID for the better part of two years now. He has uh, insights and both as a scientist and just as a commentator and observer on how these things work. His piece in Ordinary-Times.com yesterday, his usual Thursday throughput, make sure you don't miss it every Thursday. It's great. But he writes about Omicron. So from Ordinary-Times.com, quote from Michael Siegel, the situation with Omicron variant is changing almost on an hourly basis. What we think we know now is that Omicron has been in the United States for weeks. It is incredibly infectious at least twice as infectious as Delta, maybe 10 times as infectious as the wild COVID-19 virus. Vaccines still have efficiency in reducing both the likelihood of infection and the severity of it, although boosters help a great deal. It appears to infect the upper respiratory system, which the original COVID did not do, which makes it more infectious. But it also may be why early data is suggesting it is less dangerous, with hospitalization rates half or lower than Delta. If it's less likely to cause pneumonia, it's less likely to kill. Remember, upper respiratory infection, pneumonia is lower in the lungs. Putting all this together, Michael Siegel writing in Ordinary-Times.com, the next few weeks could be very bad. We will likely see a huge surge of infections. And even if Omicron is only half as deadly as Delta, that would still mean a huge number of people going to the hospital and a lot of deaths because exponents are very powerful things. But the good news, I guess, is Omicron will go through the population very fast. By the end of February, everyone will either be vaccinated or have had Omicron. The advice has not changed. Get vaxxed, get boosted, wear a mask, take whatever precautions you need. Because mild, that's in air quotes, COVID is a relative term. It's still deadly, especially if you're unvaccinated. It will still make people sick for weeks, possibly give them long COVID and may cause permanent damage that we've seen in others. 
And as I've noted, viruses are not Pokemon. They don't reach a final form and stop evolving. Every infection is another chance for a new variant to emerge. A vaccine may completely may not completely protect you, but it will dramatically cut your chances of ending up in the hospital or the morgue. At this point, anything we can do to slow the spread will help our hospital workers get through yet another awful wave. That's Michael Siegel writing in Ordinary-Times.com, turning down the noise on Omicron. Again, this stuff is all fluid. There may be another variant after that, but it's starting to look like the screaming headlines of Omicron. What Omicron is actually going to be is much more infectious, but much less severe. Now, that doesn't mean people shouldn't take precautions. You never want to play around with an illness, especially if you have health issues, pre-existing conditions, things like this. You don't want to fool with this. The elderly, of course, you don't want to fool with this. You take it seriously. But some of the screaming headlines about you know, how bad this is going to be, we need to take a step back and understand that this is not the same thing as Delta. This is not the same thing as the other COVID variants. This thing is changing. And the science is going to tell us a little bit as it changes. But sometimes some of our folks in the news media aren't changing. They need the screaming headlines. They need to try to make it a little worse than what it may actually be. Some folks on the other side of the argument may be trying to underplay how severe this is. With everything else, with Omicron, just like we've been saying with COVID for two years now, keep your bearing. You're responsible for your own health and your own family first. Start there and figure out what's best for you and your family and your friends and take care of yourself and your friends and family first. Then we can start debating all the rest of this. But when you debate it, keep your bearing. These things change. Omicron, we're starting to get data that it may not be as severe and it may just be more infectious, which means you may see a rash of people getting it but the hospitalizations and the death toll may not go up. We sure hope it does not. Steli Kills take it seriously, but we can't just live in fear all the time. We have to find ways forward. To that note, we're going to be hearing a lot about COVID-19 in the coming days. We already heard from the president this week, decided that they are going to buy uh, $500 million at-home rapid response testing kits and send them to anybody who wants them on a website through the U.S. Postal Service mail. For one thing, this should have been done months ago. Um, most of the rest of the world, especially in Europe, places like Germany and the U.K., uh, these home tests have been readily available for, very, for much cheaper than they are here for months, in some cases all the way back to the spring of 2020. It's ridiculous that we've waited this long, letting people have a way to test themselves and test their family members without having to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. But there's another issue at hand before that. Let's back up a minute. Most of the time, my rule with the White House press corps and the press secretary, with all due respect to everybody there that are just trying to do their jobs, is very little that goes on in the Brady briefing room actually matters. It's great for 24-hour news networks because they've got to fill in content. And every now and then you'll get a soundbite. But most of it is just people yakking and talking and caterwauling, and none of it really matters anyway. But something happened in the Brady briefing room back on December the 6th. I'm going to read this from The Atlantic, so quoting from them. This is December 7th, about an event on December the 6th. At a White House press briefing yesterday, NPR's political correspondent, Mara Liaison, asked Press Secretary Jen Psaki a question that's been on many people's minds. Quote, there are still a lot of countries like Germany and the UK and South Korea that are basically having massive testing free of charge or for a nominal free, she said. Why can't that be done in the United States? 
Saki gave a vague response about the administration's efforts to increase test accessibility and decrease costs, but liaison followed up with, quote, that's kind of complicated, though. Why not just make them free and give them out and have them available everywhere? Saki responded with a sarcastic smile. Should we just send one to every American, she asked. Well, that's interesting because that was on December the 6th. Let's fast forward to this week. And that's exactly what all of a sudden President Biden is doing. And then he went on ABC the following day and said, I wish I'd knew this was an issue two months ago and we should have done this months ago. Yes, Mr. President, you sure should have. This isn't just to knock the Biden administration. It's just another example of there's some common sense things that are not being done because the government is in its own way trying to do it. Let's back up again. Uh, our friend Scott Lincecum, who I greatly respect, recommend you follow him for all kinds of usually economic related things. But writing in Cato, and this is way back in September, so we're going back a couple more months. He took and wrote about why these tests are not coming out. Quoting from Scott Lincecum in Cato, this dearth of home tests is not for lack of companies trying. Remember, this is back in September. Public health expert Dr. Eric Tapal stated in February of this year, that's 2021, February, that there were more than 30 different rapid home tests sitting at FDA awaiting approval, some since April of 2020. Furthermore, other jurisdictions have approved dozens of tests. Germany, for example, has authorized more than 60 different versions of the tests from producers all over the world, including several made in the United States and approved for export only. The FDA's restriction on domestic supply of at-home rapid tests has had unsurprising, albeit depressing, results. Home tests are not ubiquitous. Prices are relatively high, at least $20 for a two-pack. And given the first and second issues, they are not very widely used. Back in Germany, by contrast, they're available everywhere and cost less than a dollar per test. Take, talk to the people in Israel, the UK, or elsewhere in Europe, and you will find many places practically giving away strip tests often subsidized by the government and its broader public health efforts. Here, not so much. In the United States, clear lack of testing abundance, and that's in air quotes, now may be moving from regulatory embarrassment to a real problem. Remember, this is in September. Uh, this is Delta's going on. We haven't even got to Omicron yet. In particular, the combination of the Delta variants heightened transmissibility, the start of the school year, and many workplaces ending full-time remote work has spiked interest in and demand for rapid tests that people, vaccinated or not, can use to check themselves and their kids to meet private and public protocols like the ones at my daughter's school. And that demand may be outstripping the supply of approved rapid tests. Last week, for example, CVS began limiting in-store purchases and other suppliers are struggling to keep up. That's from back in September. Now the president has come out and said, well, we're going to buy 500 million of them, but we're going to wait until Jan middle of January and we're going to set up a government-run website. Remember how well the ACA website ran initially, just for example. And then we're going to mail these tests to people. Well, Mr. President, not only should we have done this months ago, but we just put three unnecessary layers of government bureaucracy on top of this. If the government's going to do this at cost, why not buy them, send them to the pharmacies and let the pharmacies hand them out or pick some other way of doing it? Use the testing sites that are already existing, use schools, use whatever. There's a dozen ways to do that. Putting them in the hands of the Postal Service, which is already having delivery problems. And by the way, January is a rough 
month for the postal service because they have another surge of of mail post holidays so it's going to take folks maybe a week or two if not longer to get those tests even after they get processed and for folks to have to go onto a web government run website and request them and then they're probably only going to get one or two and there's a lag time this is just unnecessary more bureaucracy on something that should have already been done once again my criticism of the biden administration is not what they're saying in their intentions It's that they're going once again for an optic fix instead of an actual practical fix. The optics that everybody's going to get one of these tests, but when you dig into it and turn down the noise, there's going to be multiple layers involved. And then you add in the fact that the president's own press secretary, not even a month ago, was deriding this idea. And you see why it's an optic fix. It looks bad. Omicron headlines look bad. The president's in charge now. He can't blame the last guy for what's going on now. You're in charge. You're getting the blame. You want to change the narrative. You want to change the optics. And this presidency and this administration is obsessed with fixing optics. This is an optics fix that should have already been done, that should be done a lot better, and that I suspect come the spring is going to have headlines with other problems being deliverable because of the way they set this up. Don't fear Omicron. Make good decisions. I give that advice not just to you but to the administration too. Your decisions are not good right now. You need to do better for the country. More Heard Tell right after this. Back to Heard Tell Radio, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for staying with us. Let's talk a little uh, West Virginia, which has been all over the news this week with the Joe Biden stuff, the Build Back Better stuff. We've talked about it on this here very show. We've talked about it with guests. We've talked about it ourselves. We've read about it. It's been an interesting week. Little tidbit came out. Uh, Punchbowl News, who we use frequently, I recommend you put them in your information rotation. They have a newsletter you can sign up for at Punchbowl News. They do a lot of inside information. And years like this year, where there was so much news surrounding uh, the machinations of legislation, they are inside the Capitol. They have good resources. They give you good insight. They try to break things down. I highly recommend them. But they have an interesting tidbit this morning in Punchbowl News. The millions against mansions, I'll read from it, $10 million. That's roughly how much has been spent on West Virginia broadcast cable and satellite TV and radio directly targeting Senator Joe Manchin on a variety of legislative priorities. As our subscribers well know, we monitor political television ads quite closely. Members and senators are extraordinarily sensitive to issues, advertising because their constituents see it and they hear about it back home during weekends and recesses. Paid advertising drives news stories, too, and constituents drive lawmakers because constituents vote. It's as simple as that. Over the last year, we've noticed a big chunk of issue ads targeting Manchin. The reason here is obvious. He's a critical Democratic vote on nearly every issue that comprises President Joe Biden's legislative agenda. Everything from voting rights to the Build Back Better Act to nominations and more. We should note that buying airtime in most of the West Virginia media markets is cheap compared to bigger population centers. In other words, $10 million goes a really long way. Furthermore, 2021 was not an election year, so the airwaves aren't exactly packed with ads. And on top of that, we only calculated ads that were directly targeting Mansion. We noticed a number of other spots that were obliquely about Mansion, but we decided to leave those out. These totals were compiled by our friends at Ad impact at our request. The ads touched on wide range of issues. They targeted Mansion on filibuster reform, Build Back Better, the For the People Act. That's the voting rights package, uh, HR1, it's also called. David Chipman's nomination as ATF director, which went down to defeat director and his own 
Freedom to Vote Act, that was uh, Manchin's compromise bill for H.R. 1 that they're still hoping to maybe do something with in the spring. Paid family leave and medical care, child care, home care, rising inflation and more. It's fascinating to see, this is from Punchbowl News, how both liberal and conservative groups try to curry favor with Manchin on the airwaves. The right praises Manchin's stances against his party. The left gushes over Manchin's lack of being bipartisan. The West Virginia likes to see himself as a deal maker who can buck party orthodoxy. The deluge of ads in Manchin's home state are a great example of outside groups playing to his vanity to sell their agenda, or are they quashing the other party's priorities? That's from Punch Bowl News. Let's let's take a step back for a second. Why are all these groups running ads in West Virginia? Well, ostensibly, like Punchbowl News says, the idea is that you're putting pressure on Joe Manchin. You get his constituents to call in or email in or put pressure on him to do this, that, or the other. Um, I take a little issue with them about the ads aren't packed. No, it's not like right before an election. But when I went home over the last the course of this year and would sit and watch TV, the ads were everywhere. They were every couple of commercials and that's on at my folks' house. They have satellite TV. And even with satellite TV, the local ad buys that they do, it was just ubiquitous that you were going to get some kind of an ad about Joe Manchin. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. They're going to spend that much money trying to pressure him by overt means. Did it work? Well, it hasn't yet. So is the point of these ads really to convince Joe Manchin? Or is it just to show activity? Remember, these groups are all mostly nonprofits and political action committees and or uh, designated uh, political entities that have agendas. I suspect a lot of this doesn't really have anything to do with Joe Manchin at all, except he's the issue of the day. I think a lot of this is these groups have to show that they're doing something because they fundraise all year round now. The political environment has changed. You don't just fundraise in election season. These groups have to fundraise all the time because they have to staff. They have to have overhead. They have to fund their organization. They have to grow their organization. And they have to convince their donors that there is activity all year round, year after year, 24-7, to justify the money they're asking for in their fundraising. So when something like Joe Manchin happens, where he becomes kind of you know the character of the day for the better part of a year, in the political discourse, he's who's going to get targeted by these groups because now they can go to their fundraisers and go, we have to do something about Joe Manchin and they can buy ads in West Virginia. And the fact whether they actually work or not is secondary because they're doing something. One of the things about turning down the noise on our political environment right now is understanding what is actual activity that's going towards something and what's hamster running on the wheel just to say you're getting activity in and to look like you're busy. A lot of these ad buys are just hamster on the wheel running. They're getting exercise. They're burning money. They're doing something. They're not really accomplishing anything. Take a look at Joe Manchin. He's in the same position going into the new year. He was back in the spring being obstinate, saying he's going to get what he wants and driving everybody nuts. And that's making them spend even more money on something that's clearly not working. Not sure this is particularly healthy for our politics, but that's, not a way that's probably going to fix things. Maybe some of these groups and some of their fundraising folks and the people that give them money might start realizing it's bad business. And maybe the bad business angle will cut through where the bad politics angle hasn't. And some of this nonsense may start curtailing.
But going into 2022, I doubt it. I think it's going to get even worse. We have an entire industry in America built around political fundraising now. Most of it is nonprofit set up. So people are making vast amounts of money because the great thing about nonprofits is almost everything you do, if you're attached to a nonprofit, you can build bill to the nonprofit. You can comp a lot of stuff. You vastly lower your cost of living because you can write things off for the nonprofit. It's not a bad business to be in. You're just not really accomplishing anything except making a lot of money. But that's what most of these people want to accomplish. They just put politics on top of it as a tagline to get you to give money to them. There's almost no good reason for you to ever give money to a political group. I would argue there's no good reason for you to ever give money to a political candidate, but that's a separate discussion. As long as we feed the beast, this beast is going to keep coming to our door wanting more. We should stop funding them. We should stop feeding the business into this. Don't complain about big money in politics if we're not going to turn off the money spigot that they're feeding off of. And then when it comes to things like Joe Manchin in West Virginia and them dumping ad buys for reasons that aren't going to really do anything other than to just look busy, they won't have the wherewithal and the means to do that. And then at least the people in West Virginia can watch TV again. So it's important for us to turn down the noise and understand why these ads run. They're not always just to convince the voters. A lot of them is to get a return on investment from the fundraisers for the organizations behind them. We'll do more Hertel right after this. I'm back to Hertel. Uh, he's back uh, by popular demand. We are going to have the Brian O'Nolan Christmas Spectacular uh, on Hertel. Uh, we had him on before. He's been doing an entire series at Ordinary Dash Time on Christmas music for the better part of the last month, you madman. Uh, as an editor, I sure appreciate it. As a writer, I don't know how you're doing it, uh, but uh, it's been really, really good, though. So my friend Brian O'Nolan, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Yourself? Uh, we're hanging in there, uh, trying to careen out of 2021 into great unknown of 2022 here in a few days. Uh, let me let me just start right there. You You've... You've covered Hanukkah music. You've covered sacred music. You've covered uh, what you called musical crimes against humanity. Uh, you've covered silly songs. You've tried to solve murder mysteries. Uh, you've done some really, what I found interesting, really obscure kind of old English carols from the old English, almost Dickinsonian kind of, if that's a word, tradition. What, what have you learned doing all this Christmas music to this depth that's passed? You know, we, we all know the classics that we all love and, and the, the Christmas music. But what have you learned from this, doing this kind of immersion into Christmas music? Oh, it, it's it, it's amazing how much I didn't know. Um, you know, I, I went through at the beginning of this and, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, as an editor doing, you know, loving having somebody do something for a whole month. Of course, I picked the. I picked the, the year that Advent is literally the longest it can possibly be. You know, 28 days, four weeks is the maximum. And uh, of course, I picked that year to do it. Um, but it's, you know, I laid out on a spreadsheet. I talked to some friends and family, you know, like, what songs do you want to hear? And of course, I came up with way more than. And then at first I thought and, and even going through the month, people have said to me, like, oh, are you going to do this song? Or or people said, um, you know, when I did the Crimes Against Christmas, they said, you know, oh, you didn't include Last Christmas. And I was like, hey, that was number four on my list. I only have so much space. But it's amazing how many things I didn't know about 
the the songs and the traditions and it's it you know i guess i should have known that a lot of those older ones were a lyric that somebody wrote probably to some music the music got lost and then other people have provided music over time i didn't realize that uh gustav holtz the composer uh you know contributed a uh, famous christmas tune although i'm forgetting which one off the top of my head because i've done so many um and a lot of them had to do with, uh, you know, I didn't know the specifics. The the uh, Catalonian song Rio Rio Chiu, um, I knew it was a Christmas song. I didn't realize it was specifically a carol for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And unfortunately, I wrote that one up after December 8th. So it was just sort of like, you know, oh, if I was doing this in the future in the time machine, I'd line it up a little better. But uh, it's it's been an adventure and a good one. But the the way you've came to that, though, that's kind of a nice little microcosm of how we got most of our Christmas music, isn't it? It's been kind of chaotic. It, like all music, all music is borrowing something from somebody else to make something new. So the way you're describing that, that that's just kind of how our Christmas music traditions that, you know, especially in America, we we pretty much, you know, we know Nat King Cole and the carols and the hymns. But th- this stuff really was varied. And there's so many different musical traditions that. The, the this is just endless when you start pulling on these threads and start trying to run them down, aren't they? Oh yeah, and there's so much there's so much borrowing. You know the the modern sense of uh, intellectual property and uh, copyright and things like that, which I'm I'm a fan of. I'm, I'm not you know saying anything against it, but when you look back at processes that took hundreds of years for you know, people to be, you know, chanting it in in a, a sacred sense, and then it gets pulled into sort of a more, maybe a more of a popular music singing, or people are singing them in, in pubs, and then they're adding different tunes to things because people forget. And, um, you know, there's a very sort of folklore process that happens with these things. You know, it, it, it when my sort of my sense with these, with talking about these songs is that, you know, there's a, the difference for me between tradition and folklore is that tradition is the things that we sort of insist on remembering. And then folklore is sort of the things that we can't possibly forget that we just, you know, try as we might, we can't. And so a lot of these tunes are just sort of interwoven into what we do this time of year, whether it's Hanukkah, Christmas, or secular winter holiday songs, you know, it's all interwoven and we just end up with this, this beautiful time of year at the very end. And uh, then we limp our way into the next year and go, oh, boy, winter really is cold. That folklore line's good. You should write a piece on that. I'm going to be an editor for just a second. You might want to write that yeah. one down. Uh, yep. Don't knock on those pub songs that steal lyrics, though, because we got a pretty good national anthem that way. A lot of people That's probably right, don't exactly. realize. Um, yeah, yeah. People, people don't realize it's a drinking song uh, with some uh, patriotic lyrics put on and slowed way down. Yeah, it works best national anthem in the world i'm biased but that's just the fact i mean no disrespect to other but you know it's 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 rough going when it goes national anthem uh but to be fair there's some christmas songs that are some real real slogs and we don't mean the bad ones you know we joke about you know wonderful christmas times some of these traditional carols especially the victorian era the charles dickens man they're more like funeral dirges than they are the christmas carols like we think of aren't they Oh, they really are. And, and um, things like uh, the Coventry Carol, which I wrote about uh, just the other day, um, you know, it's a lullaby, but it, it's not a happy sounding song. And if you think about, you know, 
lullabies in English, you know, rockabye baby, uh, you know, rockabye baby on the treetop. And then all of a sudden the cradles falling out of the tree, you know, it's, it's, we sing some strange things to kids when they're little, but um, yeah, some of them are kind of dark, but it fits with the season. I mean, we've got, um, you know, we just had the shortest day of the year, sunlight wise. Um, A lot of these traditions going back and and not to start a, a discussion about the, you know, the fundamentals of religious traditions and things like that. But a lot of these holidays are about either light, literally or figuratively coming into the world or being preserved in the world. And this time in the Northern Hemisphere, farther up you go, the darker it gets. And you can see sort of ancient peoples really celebrating this idea of, yeah, it's dark and dark is dangerous. You know, if you go back in, in history, the you had that circle of fire that you gathered around with your your folk there, your people. And, and outside of that was dangerous. It was bears and wolves and things like that. So you can see why even today we celebrate these times when light positivity starts coming back in. Yeah, and we're talking to Brian O'Nolan on the Brian O'Nolan Christmas Spectacular on the Herd Tell Show. Uh, he's laughing about that, but uh, that's because he always names his uh, Zoom call that we do as Andrew Donaldson's doghouse, so it's just a little tit for tat there. Um, talk about that for just a second, though, because there's no way you can discuss Christmas music without the religious overtones. Like a lot of Western Christianity, they do borrow excessively from uh, more pagan traditional uh, tr- traditions, uh, things like our Christmas tree. We, you know, that, that came from the Goss and the Visigoths, you know, stuff like this. Yep. Um, how do you parse it out? Because the music, I find it fascinating that the musical traditions, you had that great line about folklore a minute ago the music is almost like the dividing line where it goes from a religious belief, whether it's one of the, you know, earth-based religions or, you know, Christianity as we know it now, the music seems to be the dividing line where that crosses from, okay, this is a religious thing to, okay, now it's a folklore thing. And we're all just going to sing a happy song about, you know, running grandma down with a reindeer. Um, (laughs) But isn't that kind of, is that the mist that the folklore passes through where it went from religious dogma to just, you know, part of the collective cultural conscience? Yeah, I think so. And it's it's also, I think, if you go back and you think, I, I like, I try to think as much about when I think about history, especially, you know, not recent history, I try to think about, you know, the the personal experience, what's it, not, not sort of the textbook level, but what's it like to be those people. And I think that when you're talking about, like, let's say the, the Christian evangelization of somewhere like England, um, which is one of my sort of historical wheelhouses that I just love to read and study about, um, you get sort of this, it's an, it was an adaptation process. It wasn't necessarily what we picture sometimes where you get the missionaries coming in and saying, okay, you guys are doing everything wrong. This is how you're supposed to be doing it. It was sort of going in and taking like, uh, you know, oh, you've got this tradition and it kind of connects to the same sort of thing that we're talking about. So we'll just sort of adapt it, not necessarily say that you're, you're wrong, but like, here's another way to look at what you're doing. And so we get things like Christmas trees. And the Yule log, which, you know, that that very clearly goes a long way back. And even the time of year when we celebrate Christmas is it was originally, I believe, more like March. Um, whereas, you know, and then we're still talking thousand plus years ago when it got moved to December. But I think there's sort of there was this adaption between 
the spread of Christianity and, and not necessarily tamping down every tradition that people had before. I mean, uh, the word Easter uh, was a pagan goddess. So, so you've got this, this adaptation of different beliefs and sort of a, a slow molding over time as opposed to just a, a wiping out. And I think the songs and the music, when we look at the old, old stuff, um, is sort of like lingering folk. It's that folklore thing. It's those lingering traditions that are still hanging around. And over the course of hundreds of years, people in the moment don't necessarily realize that they're they're talking about some of the same things their pagan ancestors did, but at the same time, they probably don't, didn't really care. And, and as we get into modern times, we've sort of spread it into, we've got these, you know, secular ideas of Christmas. We've got the Santa Claus holding the Coke bottle uh, and all that stuff. And I think it all just gets put into this, this beautiful blender. And we end up with a selection that fits almost everybody. Yeah. We're talking to Brian O'Nolan, talking a little Christmas on this uh, special uh, Christmas Eve edition of Hertel, and we'll continue with him right after this. <laughs> Welcome back to Hertel. It's Andrew Donaldson, joined by Brian O'Nolan on the Brian O'Nolan Christmas Spectacular segment of Hertel on this Christmas Eve. Uh, we're talking about all these traditions. Uh, we are having our annual, it seems like, uh, COVID pandemic Christmas again. The thing is, some of our Christmas music and Christmas carols, this is not the first plague or pandemic that Christmas caroling has been done in. And that actually reflects in some of the musical traditions, doesn't it? It, it absolutely does. I mean, um, we were talking a moment ago about the sort of the idea of kind of light in the darkness. And this was definitely a series, a season of rebirth. And so if there whatever plague, whatever pandemic happened to be going on at the time, um, Christmas hasn't always been modern Christmas, but it's always been important and it's always been a, a time of rebirth and a time of, of the light returning into the world. And so it's time of hope and, you know, <laughs> we, we need hope right now. Sure do. Um, let's, I'll tee you up on this because by far the most, uh, popular Christmas uh, edition you did in your many, many, what are we up to? 28, 29 of them now at ordinary-times.com. Yeah, I've lost you, count. Yeah, I have to. I ought to go look. But you you wrote something for every day of Advent. But the Christmas songs, Crimes Against Humanity was by far the most popular post. But you've mentioned it. So I'll give you a little leeway to run on this because I think we're going to disagree. But you named three songs that we pretty much universally all agree are horrendous crimes against uh, the auditory landscape of America and the world and humanity in wonderful Christmas time in uh, John Lennon's uh, horrible dirging uh, of Christmas book ended with cooing at Yoko Ono. And then the absolutely atrocious, um, do they know it's Christmas after all, which might be the most privileged thing in the history of privileged things. Oh, it, it, it's number one. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, crimes against humanity. That was a crime against Bono, but that's another, we already talked about that prior. Uh, but you're saying that they're, they're <laughs> extreme Yoda voice. There is another, what was number four on your list there, my friend? Last Christmas. Ah, come on now. That at least it has a melody and a tune, unlike that ridiculousness about you know feeding the poor kids in Africa. It it does. My issue with Last Christmas, and and I know that this is me being, I, I can be t I can be very pedantic sometimes, and I'm going to put on my pedant's hat right now. 
Um, last Christmas, I gave you my heart. The very next day, you gave it away. How is someone else supposed to give my heart to someone else? <laughs> I don't understand it. It's like I, I give you my it's like you've got this metaphor and it's okay, it's very pretty, it's very understandable. We under, and then you're giving my heart and so this year to save me from tears, I'm going to give it to somebody special. I mean, I guess that's some great shade right there because you're not special. But um, and I guess I'm just not a I'm not a big George Michael fan. Um, the man was super talented. I take nothing away from him. Um, just not really my thing. And anytime it comes on, uh, my spine starts doing one of those. OK, so I'm, I'm going to go there with you because we're friends and friends can hold friends accountable. That's right. This may be the rare, modern, questionable Christmas song that got improved when it got remade because when Taylor Swift got a hold of it, it did get very popular again. And I thought that version was not that bad. I Okay. I'll, I will confess that I haven't heard that version. Yeah. Um, I have a daughter. So, you know, T Swift <laughs> is just a fact, you know, it's the, it's the third sacrament basically. Yeah. Um, but and you can say whatever you want about Taylor Swift. There's a few Taylor Swift songs I do like. I don't like all of her, her songs, but I do like some Again, of she's, she's super talented. I'm, you hey, know. I do, look, look, I'm the kind of guy I just explained the whole Joe Manchin Build Back Better thing using the Wildest Dreams lyrics from Taylor Swift. So, you know, guilty. <laughs> but having said all that, I think that's one of those cases where, and again, nothing take George Michael. And of course, we know he, the tragic end that that had, but just one of the most talented, just raw perform. Like, dude, dude was just great. Oh, absolutely. I think that was just kind of a bad, you know, it's it's almost like the 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 teenage boy that went on the voice and sang Katy Perry's Teenage Dream and they're like you sing fine but what are you doing singing that song that just doesn't work. I think it's one of those things where George Michael singing it it just didn't work as well now when Taylor Swift sings it now it all of a sudden works but that's just my opinion. Well, and if you look at the lyrics, it's, it, it is made for Taylor Swift. Yeah, it? I mean, I, it makes sense now because we have, you know, the you want to talk about Festivus, you know, every one of her records is a airing of grievances against exes, basically. You know, it, exactly. it fits and, and perfect. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's been, what, probably 10 years since she did that now. But, you know, I, I think this is the rare case because over and over again, we talk about these bad modern Christmas songs. They're either epic or they're terrible and there's no middle ground. I think this is one that actually improved by by a female voice singing it as opposed to George Michael as good as he could be. I, you know what? I, I can't disagree with that, um, specifically because I haven't heard that version. But I'm, I'm going to I will absolutely believe you there. And I will also say that Christmas songs are covered and recovered and recovered all the time. And, you know, it's almost not fair to do the what's a, what's a cover of a song that improved on the song thing when you're talking about Christmas, because there are so many different versions of so many different songs, whether it's uh, rock around the clock or sleigh ride or any of those, you can, you can look and say, well, this particular performance of it is great, but these others are trash, whether it's great because it's tongue in cheek or because it's teed up like a breakup song around Christmas for Taylor Swift or whatever it is. Um, you know, the, the bringing something new to something old is a very noble tradition with Christmas music. Yeah, and on that note, um, I am legendarily known for my fairness as an editor. Uh, I do not put my thumb on the editorial scale very often and only when needed. 
but I did with you. Um, I did mm-hmm. specifically request a song and it falls right in line with that of a remake and a traditional. And this is a band that I've got some iffy history with. They got one or two songs I like, but overall their whole, you know, over, I don't really care for that much. And they teamed up with another person who's been used on TV commercials to the point that I just want to stick a rusty fishing knife through both sides of my ears just so it'll stop because of the while crying, you know, because while crying. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about bare naked ladies. They teamed up with a Canadian legend in Sarah McLaughlin and they sung uh, a two Christmas classics combined. And I thought it was uh, the musicianship, the uh, you know, I play a little guitar, the guitar riff, the way they, they did that, you know, the muted staccato guitar riff is just, I thought it was brilliant. I loved it, but your take on it, sir. Um, I think as if we just sort of look at it as just the song itself and the performance, fantastic. I love the blending of the two songs together. Um, I think that the way we they should tell people what the two songs are. I didn't mention it. I apologize. Uh, it was uh, We Three Kings and oh, what was the other one? I'm forgetting off the top of my head. I'm remembering the Sarah McLaughlin part, but not the Bare Naked Ladies part. Um, do you remember offhand? Yeah, God rest you, merry gentlemen. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, God rest you, merry gentlemen, and we three kings. They're putting those songs together, um, the fact that the one the the bare naked ladies begin with one, and then Sarah McLaughlin sort of weaves in the the, the we three kings part of it. Um, it definitely has that, and this is not a knock at all. It's got that very '90s kind of folk rocky recorded because I think it was recorded in a radio studio sound where yeah, the, it was a live cut i'm pretty sure yeah i'm pretty sure it is and and the 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 drummer is just sort of playing some hand drums and the the bass is, is acoustic and they're clearly enjoying the performance i think it's fantastic my only quibble with it is i really can't stand the voice of that one guy from the bare naked ladies but that said taken as a whole i think it's a fantastic christmas song and i think it's a it's a great contribution to sort of the Christmas music thing because you're, again, you're taking something old in this case to something's old and you're blending them together in a new way and it's fun and it's unique. And I wish people would do that sort of thing more. Yeah. And a way to kind of wrap this whole thing up, the uh, Brian O'Nolan Christmas spectacular on her tell. Um, it, it's kind of, I think of my own family tradition, my mom's side gets together on Christmas. Uh, everybody gets to sing the carols, but we only let Kim sing, you know, Oh, Holy night. You know, she sings that by herself. There, there's something to Christmas, like you can get like a band or an artist you don't normally care for, and they can elevate and sing a song you love because you connect to the song. And it works the other way around where everybody can sing. You know, one, one of my gripes about modern uh, religious music is they they got they did away with common key. This is a rant for another day, but all the old hymns are in common key. Everybody can sing it. The new stuff, nobody can sing that crap because you're trying to, you know, do all the runs and you can't sing it. Nobody can sing that stuff. But anyway. All those old carols are all in common key. Everybody can sing it. Even if you can't sing, you can sing a Christmas carol. Um, yep. I think this is just one of those really great things about the holiday season. Uh, and you covered you covered Hanukkah music as well, which I thought was really cool because there was so much overlap I'd never realized. Like not, of course, the subject matter and stuff, but musically, it was a lot of the same stuff. That's really the great part of this uh, series that you wrote in the holiday series, isn't it? That just... There's a lot of commonality and a lot of humanity coming through the music at this holiday season, isn't there? 
There is. And, and even though we've got, there's some, some oddball traditions out there that from a, you know, an American context, you look at and go, wow, that's strange. You've got little kids in the Northeast of Spain uh, hitting a log with a stick and chanting poop log, poop log. Um, it and sounds then, better in the Catalan, just to be fair, though. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It does. <laughs> then they then they remove the blanket off the back of the log and there's candy and presents and stuff. And it's great. But it's just this. Everybody's got their own little traditions, every family, every group. And it's about togetherness. And, uh, you know, you said humanity. That's that's really what it's about. And that's that's why I wanted to include the, the Hanukkah stuff. It, that was all new to me uh jess epstein uh you know contributed great stuff there and it was all new and you know i'm 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 definitely better educated on this stuff than i was uh, a month and a half ago yeah it was great stuff also read jessica epstein's piece about uh, jews in new jersey is an excellent excellent piece about her faith community that i recommend everybody go read uh, Brian O'Nolan, we will continue to have you on the show next year. We'll talk about how the original elves went with Santa to throw the bad kids a beating in the German tradition. Uh, we'll talk about yeah. that a little bit, but, uh, you're great. You're going to be a contributor on the show going into the new year. I appreciate your writing. I appreciate your friendship and you and yours in the great North up there. Have a Merry Christmas, my friend. Yes. And, uh, to you, your family and all your listeners as well. All right, buddy. We'll talk again real soon, sir. Yep. Thank you. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's, uh, let's have a moment of joy here to wrap up this Christmas Eve edition of the show. Uh, the biggest movie in America right now is Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, one of the biggest openings of all time. This is just a mammoth movie. I know my family loved it. Uh, I did not go. I don't like movies like that in the theater, but the kids sure loved it. Great story. Uh, do you remember uh, Bridger Walker? This is the kid, the young man who tried to save his sister from a dog attack. He ended up getting um, scarred up and disfigured from it. He had wounds from it. It was a great heartwarming story, even though, you know, what happened to him was terrible. Well, Tom Holland, who plays Spider-Man in the current uh, itineration, uh, promised that he would visit with his uh, boy when that story went viral some time ago. Well, they've made good on that. Uh, Tom Holland, I'm reading from the uh, New York Post here, uh, Tom Holland's and Dahlia, who plays the love interest, Mary Jane, and the cast of Spider-Man No Way Home spent an amazing day on set with a fellow hero, Little Bridger Walker, who put his life on the line to save his little sister from a dog attack in 2020 at age six. The, devout, the devout Marvel fans' unparalleled bravery has turned the boy from Cheyenne, Wyoming, into an international sensation. Walker was promised by Tom Holland that he could spend a day on the set with the crew, according to Bridger's father. Robert Walker. They don't just act the part of friendly neighborhood heroes. That's what they truly are. He wrote in a heartfelt Instagram post with pictures. The look on the kid's face was priceless when he rounded the blue screen to see Tom in full costume of Spider-Man high above the set on a light post. It was emotional to see him wave at the kid like he was one that was supposed to be excited, not the other way around. When it came time for Walker to finally meet Holland in full costume, the web had looked to his young disciples on a live aerial swing across the film set while also showing the little hero tricks behind sticking spiders, iconic three point pose, then bend the leg really bend it. Holland is heard telling the instructing Walker for a picture. I can't tell you guys apart. The Spider-Man's and calls out to the crew. Um, go watch this video. Uh, the family, what they did was of course there's CGI used for these films. They're on, they're surrounded by green screen. Uh, Tom Holland went all out here. He's not only wearing the costume, he's in the wire sling that they used to do all the jumping and flying and things that he does. 
so they they strap the boy to Tom Holland and he actually does the jumping around and goes up to the light post and swings around and you can imagine for a little kid like that that just has to be just the top of the world uh so good on them uh Tom Holland and Daya uh the cast of the Spider-Man movie uh that's good humans being there and we applaud you for that and that brave little boy got to take his sister who he saved with him and I'm sure that's something that they'll never forget. So a little moment of joy there to end uh, the program today. Make sure you're checking on your loved ones, your friends and families. Use your social media for something other than sending cat pictures and complaining about Washington. And check on each other and reach out to folks and spend this holiday weekend doing some good in the world. That'll do it for Hertel today. I'm Andrew Donaldson. We sure appreciate you. However you're watching and or listening. Make sure you're subscribing. Make sure you're sharing us on your social media. That only costs you a click, but it means the world to us because that gets more folks to know that our little program is worth checking out. Uh, big plans coming up. We'll be talking about that in the new year. But we got another week of work coming up Monday. Uh, good stuff coming. Thank Brian O'Nolan for being on the show today. Appreciate all of you, uh, wherever you are, across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Y'all have a great Christmas. Turtel Show. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Somos la máquina. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.